Good morning. How are you guys doing? Happy to be here. Yes. Happy that tomorrow is a holiday. Yes. I know. I know. It just gives a whole different meaning to our weekend, right? Well, and, and as John mentioned, I'm Susan, and if I haven't met you, I would love to do that. I'd love to hear a bit of your story. Uh, that's my favorite And this morning, one of my other favorites is being able to share with you from the Word of God in the book of Nehemiah, because we're in week seven of our Nehemiah series, Rebuilding, where Nehemiah has has begun to look at his life as a rebuilder and what that means. So being a rebuilder, if you're new to us, we've learned that being a rebuilder is when you look around and you see the brokenness around you in the world, and you press into that deep conviction in your soul that it's not okay. And so for Nehemiah, his not okay rebuilding work was to rebuild the wall that had been broken down around the city with the people that he loved. His people were unprotected. They were, uns- ins- they were unsecured enemies that would come and, and create trouble for them. They couldn't settle. They couldn't flourish. And so that rebuilding work became Nehemiah's one thing. It was the one thing that he saw that he couldn't not do. And so chapter 1 of Nehemiah says that when he saw that the walls or heard that the walls were broken down, he sat down and he wept. And he prayed and he fasted and he mourned before the God of heaven And God fanned his grief into a white hot flame that set him ablaze to go and rebuild that wall. It became his one thing. We learned last week that doing a one thing, being about a one thing, means that you are not about distraction. You are willing to to navigate around distraction to the one thing that God's put on your heart to do. And then last week in in chapter 6, we saw that the one thing had finally been finished. The wall had been finished in an amazing, astounding, miraculous 52 days with sweat and toil and focus and good leadership and the very strength of God. They had finished that wall in 52 days. And I can imagine that Nehemiah celebrated. Can you imagine that? Like maybe he was sitting around the pub with his buddies drinking beer out of a sheep horn. I don't know. What did they do back then? But they had to have been happy because God was their strength and they finished the wall and it was a miracle. But one of the things that happens when we finish our one thing is that maybe our response to that is not so helpful. Like like maybe our one thing has been to raise our, our one thing child. Or maybe it's two things or three things or four things. And so we've poured into them, right? We've, we've been with them. We've taught them. We've prayed for them. We've prepared them. And finally, they're ready to launch into the wide, wide world and start kindergarten, right? I'm feeling you, parents. <laughs> I'm feeling that school's starting. What do you do when your one thing has come to a close? We've got seven more chapters in the book after the wall is built. What is that going to be about? Well, what Nehemiah begins to recognize is that the one thing is not about glory days, where we bookmark that time, and from that point forward, we fuel our ego, and we fuel our pride. Because we can do that, can't we? The before and the after of, well, I was a wall builder, remember when that thing was built in 52 days, 
right? And we bookmark that and we fuel our pride. Or maybe the one thing is about being off the hook with a God that we imagine is a little bit peeved with us most of the time. We have a narrative that tells us that if we do a one thing, that for a time, that anxiety, that guilt, that shame that we encounter goes away until it starts to rebuild again. And that guilt and shame actually become our one thing. And so we need another one quickly so that we can get off the hook with our guilt and our shame. Kurt Thompson uh, wrote a book called The Soul of Shame that I'd highly recommend. This is a quote that he had. Kurt Thompson, Jesus follower, um, speaker, author, psychiatrist, says this, that shame is the emotional weapon that evil uses to corrupt our relationships with God and with each other and prevent us from using the gifts we've been given that prevents us from being a rebuilder, right? And the close cousin to guilt and shame is anxiety because, right, we're Westerners and we are what we do. And if we, if we have to, we can sit still for maybe five minutes. But the truth is that sitting still is really unpleasant because it, it allows space for those things that we'd rather shut out, those feelings and experiences that are not something we want to encounter regularly to, to rise back up again. And so we do something more. We say to ourselves, if only we had another one thing to do, we'd be enough. We'd be acceptable. We'd be loved. Nehemiah realizes that his one thing was not a what. It was a why. He knew that it wasn't about refueling his pride. It wasn't about relieving his guilt. It wasn't about assuaging his anxiety. Nehemiah knew that it wasn't about stacking rocks up on top of each other and building a circle around a city. It wasn't actually about the wall itself. It manifested as a wall. But the why always outweighs the what. And the why for Nehemiah was the people that would be within the walls. It was the people who had come from exile, who needed flourishing and needed a place to settle. And it was those people who needed to be reminded of who God was and why that mattered to them. Nehemiah recognized that rebuilding is always about people and it's always about God. Nehemiah recognized that it's always about people and it's always about God. We're going to be in chapter 7. I'm going to start with verse 1. And so it'll be on the screens behind me or you can pull it open in your Bible app. And so we'll read. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, and while the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also, appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some of their posts and some near their own houses. Now, the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. So what does Nehemiah help us see here? Rebuilding is about people, right? We've established that rebuilding is about people, and the people were of different kinds. Scripture tells us that the people who were left behind as the Israelites got hauled off into captivity were the very poorest of the very poor. And so they had struggled in that land on their own for a long, long time. 
There were people who came back from exile who had left everything that they had known. They'd been gone a long time. They left family. They left culture. They were refugees. And they were looking for a new way of life. There were only about 2% of the people who got hauled off who came back. This was a special breed. There were people who were like Nehemiah, who had, had poured in sweat and toil and were looking for others who wanted to rebuild with him. And so there were people looking for like kind, maybe like you and me, as we get set ablaze for something that God puts on our hearts. Who else? Who else would do that with us? There were people who had probably lost sight of God. Being in captivity in a pagan land that's far away, you don't hear much about the one true God that your forefathers and your foremothers and all the people before you celebrated and remembered. There were people who, who had probably been jaded, who'd lost lost interest and lost the understanding of who God was. And Nehemiah's rebuilding of his one thing was their invitation from the Spirit of God to come in, to find rest, to be with me. Because rebuilding is always about people. The first thing that we see that Nehemiah does to be about people is he safeguards the one thing, right? Like we don't raise up our kids for six years and say, thank you very much for living in my house for six years. I hope it goes well with you now that you start kindergarten, right? No, we don't. We nurture the one thing. We breathe life into it continually. And so he delegates, and he delegates wisely. It's not, it's not counterintuitive to have strategy in Scripture, right? It's not all a spiritual deal. So he delegates to wise people who follow God, who have a heart that is akin to his, and he, he tells them smart things. Hey, in the morning, when it's more likely that there's riffraff outside the gates, keep the gates closed. And hey, spread out along the wall so that it's not just at the main entrances, but next to your house that we've got guards set in place. So he used some strategy there, and God, God gave him favor in that. He, he chose godly men to be with him. The second thing that we see that Nehemiah does is he understands God's generosity, that there's space for more. There's space for more people. Verse 4 says this, the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. Don't you love the detail that God gives us in his word? Because like if I'm Nehemiah and I've just built a wall and it's been a major thing that I'm celebrating with beer and sheep horns, like I'm going to start building houses now because the houses are not yet built, right? Doesn't that just make all the sense in the world? But that's not actually what happens here. That's not what Nehemiah does. Verse 5 says this, So my God put it into my heart to assemble the people the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. Who's in the room, he wants to know. Who do we have? Who has, been, who has come back with us from exile? And, and these people came back a while ago. So they've been there for maybe 90 to 100 years. They're the first rebuilders coming back into the land. And Nehemiah wants to know who they are. Nehemiah was a vision, had a vision of rebuilding people. There was a, an interesting story about a pioneering aviator who in the 1940s um, bought some land for pretty cheap, relatively speaking, in a beautiful part of British Columbia on the coast. 
and he developed that land over the next several years to be a jet-set place for people to get away. So John Wayne and Walt Disney and Bob Hope and, and others would go to this place to get away from it all in this pristine, beautiful place. And then something happened that I think we're familiar with. There was, a, there was an outbreak of a disease. It was polio. And a polio outbreak happened. And there were two weeks of quarantine. And after the two weeks of quarantine, the order came to vacate. And they did. It was like a ghost town. There were pots on the stove with food in them ready to serve that night. The table was set. The beds were made. And there was no one there. And for two years, that place fell in disrepair. And then a man who was a Jesus follower, who had started up a student's ministry, a youth ministry, who wanted to, to make space for kids to come to a beautiful part of the planet and encounter Jesus in their lives, got wind that this place was available. And he and a buddy go up and they check out the place. And, and, and by a few years later, they've purchased this property and they, they've begun to invite kids to this place. That, that kids like who, who smoked and swore, kids who didn't have a place on Sunday mornings, kids whose families didn't follow Jesus, who really didn't know who he was, came to that place that became Malibu Young Life Camp. You guys have heard of that. Maybe some of you have been there. It's a place where kids' lives have been changed for Jesus for a lifetime because somebody saw that there was room for more. Somebody saw, where is there room for more in your neighborhoods, in your homes, in your lives? Can we be people who have the vision like Nehemiah as rebuilders that there's always room for more? And God fans that into flame. Rebuilders know the significance of every person. I will tell you, this is one of my favorite parts of what I'm going to teach this morning, and we're not even going to read it. Nehemiah was a rebuilder about every person. We've talked about people, but this next section in chapter 7 talks about the very people, the people who came back and were the early rebuilders, and he names them. And it's not the first time that they're named in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's the second time. So something in that tells us that it's important. He names them by, by family line. He names them by geographic route. He names them by vocation, by gifting. He even names them by citizenship documentation because God wants people to know that there's a way to come into the kingdom no matter who you are. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Yes. Your name. He wants to write your name in his book. Psalms tells us, 139 says this, that all the days for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Doesn't that give your soul peace? Like you don't have to worry because your name is written in his book. Rebuilders know the significance of every person. But as Nehemiah will show us, it's not just about the people, right? It's, it's about more than the people because it was God actually who invited him to partner in bringing the good for the city of Jerusalem. We get to cooperate with him. Genesis 1 tells us that when he first made man and woman, he gave them a scepter. And he said, rule over the land and the sea. I'm going to fill the waters. I'm going to fill the skies. I'm going to have creatures crawling on the ground. Have dominion over them. But he also tells us when Jesus comes that he's making a new thing. It's not about grasping and trying to find the old thing. He says, no, I, behold, 
the old has passed away. Second Corinthians 5 tells us the new has come. So we get a scepter and we get to be bearers of newness and flourishing for all those around us that don't know God's heart for them. Rebuilding is always about God. Um, we're in chapter 8. We're going to read from verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the book, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. Isn't that cool? All who were able to understand, men and women. He read from aloud, he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. They bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving it meaning so that the people understood what was being read. So what does God want us to know about him as we read this passage? I think one thing that I see is that he has a will and his will is not neutral. His will is that you are with him, that I am with him, that we are with him. He wants us near. And the second thing is that he has ways that he lets us know that. He has a will and a way. His will is that we're near. One of the most profound verses that I think is in Scripture is in John 17, verse 21, where Jesus is praying. It's near the end of his life. And he says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they be in us. Wow. Making a way for us to be with God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We have a hard time understanding that this is God's will because many of us kind of subconsciously have a deistic view where he's set things in motion and now he's taken a back seat and he really doesn't pay that much attention anymore. At least it feels like that. Or maybe we're very rational and, and so our rationality trumps our ability to understand that in the unseen, there may be things that don't fit our categories. Or, or maybe we've been hurt, and, and we can't understand that a good and loving God is present in the world if, if the things that we see actually happen, which they do. It's hard. And I get that. But he doesn't just tell us that he has a will. He shows us the ways. And so here are some of the ways that God shows himself to the people of Nehemiah's day. The first thing that he does is he writes his story in the places that we live. In Jerusalem, there had 1,500 years earlier had been the place where God provided a ram in the place of Isaac as Abraham offered up his son on the mountaintop. 500 years earlier, it would be the place where he appeared to David. And it would be the place for Solomon's magnificent temple would be built. The very presence of God would dwell in that holy of holies within the place where the city of Jerusalem would now stand. And when that temple was destroyed, a hundred years or so before Nehemiah would come back on the scene, it was rebuilt by, by good people who came before Ezra and Zerubbabel who were there and rebuilt that place so that the Spirit of God could dwell among them again. Because God wants to give us tangible reminders of who he is. And it's so important at this point in the history of his people because Nehemiah is on the tail end of the Old Testament chronologically. It's not that way in your Bibles. 
but it is chronologically. And so it's been a long time when there's been talk of hope and Messiah and things being restored and set new. And it hasn't yet happened, but it's been pointing that way. So God gives them a tangible reminder of who he is and what he's about. And they would need it because it would be another 400 years before Jesus would be born a baby in a stable. They needed that tangible reminder. Isn't God good? We live in a city that has a story. Tacoma was going to be city of destiny, right? And it was going to be like the railroad was going to end here, and Commencement Bay was there, port city, lots of, lots of transportation and commerce. It was going to thrive. And, and even in those early days, the darkness of, of humanity entered in when some of those very people who came to, re, to build, rebuild, build Tacoma were discriminated against, and the Chinese were excluded systematically, sent home, sent away, not included. Then there would be war, and the, the economy would, would, would tank, wax and wane. There would be Hooverville shanty houses where the houselessness problem in Tacoma would be worse than almost any place in the nation, 1,200 people living in makeshift shacks. By the time that uh, 1970s rolled around, the mayor of Tacoma would say that downtown Tacoma looked like a bombed-out Beirut. It was sad. It wasn't, it wasn't okay, right? And then some good people came along, and many of them were Jesus followers, and they began to see hope, room for more, God's generosity. They began to see, like, his vision for the, the story that we write, that he writes in our cities. And they bought up property, and they built new buildings, and they built new walls, and they, they bought up property and didn't lease it to the seedy business owners who were part of the problem. And then Tacoma began to thrive. And God kept whispering, and he whispered into the, the ear of a, a, a pastor who was willing to transplant his family to come here, and here we all are all in this room because of the hand of God writing a story in this city where we get to live with the presence and the purpose and the hospitality and the hope that, does, that helps us to live for the good of who God is. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Yes. We get to be part of that story. God reveals himself through his word. Ezra brings out the scroll. Everyone stands for six hours listening to the words of the Lord. It's hard because what he's telling them was the teaching of Torah that you need to enter into 10 days of consecration and repentance. We're not used to that. But one of the beautiful things is that God actually says, come on in. I want you to start with a day of rest. Would you just come near? I have something to say to your soul, and it's important but I'm going to start with a day of rest, and I'm going to provide some, some food along the way because I love you and I care about you, and I want you to know me and be with me. There's a, a, an app that I listen to sometimes in the mornings that um, starts with a prayer that says, it invites us to recenter our scattered senses upon the presence of God. Recentering our scattered senses upon the presence of God. That's what the people were doing. And God, God said, yes, it had been a long time. I had a little retreat where I got to sit in the woods uh, in a beautiful place before the ministry year started this year. And as God led me to the Psalms, I opened it up and just wrote down the things that he told me about himself. And he said, I'm your refuge. I, I'm going to revive your soul. Don't worry, it wasn't too bad, but he's reviving my soul. <laughs> Um, I'm going to turn your mourning into dancing. 
I'm going to give people drink from the river of my delights. Yes, he speaks through his word. And then he brings us together after he's wooed and taught and corrected. He brings us together and he unites us in community so that we can learn about him as we join together. They stood for six hours. We don't do that if it's all on our own, right? We'd be like, oh, this sounds weird. But we're standing in community. They were listening. They were men and women, all who could understand. And God gave, gave gifts and roles to the Levites who wove in and out of the crowds and said, like, yes, this in Hebrew that you're hearing that you don't recognize anymore is Aramaic. Here it is in Aramaic so that you can understand. And, and what he's saying is this, and I know that's confusing, but what he means is this, and this is what God is saying. And so we do that here on a Sunday morning, right? We do that in our groups, our anchor groups. We do that in Alpha. We do that in places where we get together and we consider um, prayer and, and the word of God together. And he speaks to us through his word. We're so grateful to have that gift. But the last way and the final way that I want to share with you is, is I think the most important, is that he gives us his joy. We don't have joy sometimes when God speaks to us, and the people didn't hear either. Verse 9, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law, and the Levites were instructing the people and said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn, don't weep, for the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Yeah, if we pay attention, it does something in us, and it should. We can't run from that. We shouldn't run from that. He has something to say to us. But it is a time where his joy is available to us. We, the, the plan B that we tell ourselves that we're on now because we did this or we were that or we have it for a long time, whatever it is that we think we need to do, right? We should all over ourselves, right? That, that no, God says, I am here to bring you near, and I'm going to give you my joy. So the last section here that we'll have this morning is from verse 10. It says, go and eat choice food and sweet drinks, and sweet drinks. send some to those who don't have anything prepared. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I know you don't feel joyful, but I want to give you my joy. I know you don't feel hopeful, but I'm going to give you my hope. And it's going to cost a lot, but I want you to have it more than anything. Joy is something that sometimes we think of as sort of like this effusive, giddy, kind of like, woohoo, sorority girl thing. I was a sorority girl, don't tell anyone. <laughs> it's like joy. No, joy, our deepest joy comes most often in our deepest sorrow. Our deep sorrow where we recognize the profound nature of our brokenness. And in that, God says, let me give you joy because I want it to be, to strengthen you. I want it to be your strength. And so in that sorrow, we also encounter God's profound, everlasting love for us. And it's in the intersection of those two that we see real joy come in the picture of a cross of Jesus who, for the joy set before him, gave himself for us. There's mourning in there, isn't there? But God tells us there's celebration. One author puts it this way, the inward coronation, 
when we say, I'm going to crown you Lord of all because I recognize my brokenness. That inward coronation takes place among confession and tears and great laughter. He gives us his joy. I'm going to call the band up. That joy for these people translated into action, it didn't make necessarily much sense to them that God sent them out at that time in the celebration and the feasting to go gather up twigs and make shanty towns for themselves to live in temporary shelters, but it reminded them of his provision for them when they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Their ancestors wandered, and he provided for them, and that was his intention. So it wasn't about, hey, stand up in the heat of the sun for six hours in a row and then go camping. That would have been the what. But the why was, I want you to know me. I want you to see how lovingly and tenderly I desire to care for you. Would you do something that doesn't make rational sense? Would you do something so that, so that I can be near you, so that you can know my heart for you? It would be another 400 years before Jesus would come. And as Jesus lived out his life of, of giving and serving and, and obeying the Father, and one day he would, he would allow himself, he would give his life to hang on the cross for you and me so that you and I could have his joy, so that his joy could be our strength. And, and after he gave himself his life on the cross, he endured it, he, he scorned the shame, he said no to shame, and he sat down because the work was done. The work was finished that you and I can have the joy of the Lord as our strength. In verse 17, it says, their joy was very great. I'm hoping that you know his joy. I'm hoping that we as a community can know his joy as we do things that don't make sense. As sometimes it's hard for us to understand. It's maybe hard for us to see a tangible picture of his hope and to turn that around and be hope for someone else. I invite us in this moment to allow God's joy in those times when we feel distant or cold or broken and we haven't yet recognized that his strength is what carries us forward. I invite us to just say, Spirit, would you fill me with your joy? Would you take away whatever barrier there is? I don't want to say yes to distractions. Would you take away that barrier so that I can have your joy, so that I can let it overflow to others? We're going to move into a time of worship and communion. Under your seats, you'll see um, communion elements, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ that's shed for you. You'll see on each side of the auditorium people who would love to pray with you. So if, you, if it takes some courage to go there, please go. If God's moving in you, go to the places and, and get prayer. It's such a sacred privilege to be able to do that with you. We're going to enter into worship. Feel free to sit or stand as the band plays. Thank you for being here this morning.